In the Reading Corner today, I'm really excited to be welcoming Lindsay Galvin to talk about her latest book, Darwin's Dragons. Um, it's a great concept in this book, uh, which we'll come to in a moment. Uh, but the story is set on the Galapagos. And just a little bit of personal detail here. I'm planning to go there for my holiday next year. Uh, so when I was reading this book, I felt like I had an advanced tour guide uh, to the area. So to tell you a little bit about this story, Darwin's Dragons is essentially about um, a young cabin boy called uh, Sims Covington, who is aboard uh, the Beagle, uh, Darwin's ship. And the story actually opens with young Sims being shipwrecked on an island that appears to be undiscovered. And from there, an amazing adventure unfolds. And Lindsay is here today to tell us all about it. Thank you so much, Nikki. I really appreciate being here today. So tell us a little bit about the concept behind Darwin's dragons, because I didn't think Darwin had any dragons in his collection. So what's all that about? <laughs> well, the concept arrived because I pitched to my publishers that I wanted to write a book about real dragons. I felt like dragons are amazing, but I wanted to take them out of fantasy and magic and into the real world. So I started drafting this book. It was set in current times. It was contemporary. And my editor said to me, let's get a bit of history in here. I think that would be really fascinating. We could add a thread when they were first discovered, these dragons. So we started brainstorming and thinking, where could you find dragons where no one would have ever seen them? We need somewhere really remote, maybe somewhere with volcanoes. And I was like, the Galapagos! <laughs> because it's got active volcanoes there and of course dragons I thought would need heat and that's kind of where the concept came from and then I started thinking during the age of exploration would be a, a fantastic time to discover dragons and we sort of talked about Charles Darwin but the final final reason it became Darwin's dragons was because I researched the beagle and discovered a cabin boy called Sims Covington was a real boy that actually was on the ship. And we know little enough about him that I thought I've got loads of artistic license there. So I'm going to create a wonderful adventure for Sims Covington involving Darwin and lots of truce and history, but with dragons. <laughs> Fabulous. We're going to get yeah. into some of the detail around that, but I'm yes. going to stick with your young protagonist for a moment, Sim Covington, um, who at the, the beginning of this story finds himself in dire circumstances. I wonder if you could just set that up for us. He has a lot of things happen to him throughout the story that he can't control, but right from the beginning, I wanted him to show the reader the sort of person he was and also to be in action himself. So what actually happens is they're on the island, him and Mr. Darwin. Sim spent a lot of his time preparing specimens, carrying equipment. And I kind of set up this relationship with them that Charles Darwin is always considered to be an old man with a long white beard because he didn't publish on the origin of species until so much later than he when he first had the ideas but actually in the book he's young he's vibrant he was a, a humble man 
a fascinated man, a very excited, excitable person when he found discoveries and was thinking through the origins of what he saw. So I've set up Sims and Charles Darwin as much more of a a man in his young 20s and a 13-year-old boy, but they've got a lot of history together and a friendship that sort of slightly bridges that distance you would have between servant and master. And then we set them in a storm and on a boat. And Mr. Darwin, luckily for me, was terribly, terribly seasick. Now, Charles Darwin really suffered with his health throughout his life and seasickness plagued him. And so Sims is used to looking after his master when he's seasick. But when they're on their rowing boat to escape the storm and get back to the Beagle, Mr. Darwin leans over the side of the boat and over he goes. Mm -hmm. And before Sims can even think, he shows both his loyalty to Mr. Darwin, his bravery, but also a certain impulsive nature. And he dives in after Mr. Darwin. And then he thinks he's probably going to drown as well. But actually, whilst he saves his master and gets hold of the rope, he himself ends up shipwrecked on Narborough Island. Which is a perfect start for an adventure uh, because he's separated. He's on his own. He's got to fall back on his own resources and everything is rather strange to him. So he's been used to finding unusual creatures on on the voyage, on the Beagle. Uh, But he comes across something unlike anything else that he's seen before. And I wondered if you could read us a little bit so we get a flavour of what that's like. Right, I'm going to read from chapter five. Sims is now on the island. He's been standing on the rocky island looking around at this bleak vista. And then suddenly he's grabbed and swept into the air. So the rocks I had been walking upon seconds ago were left far below as I was swept higher and higher face down and carried side on, the wind whistling in my ears and watering my eyes. Could this be all in my own mind? Was I off my fancy by my ordeal at sea? I kicked at the air, my arms pinned tight to my sides in the grip that held my whole torso captive. I twisted and writhed, trying to get free, but before realising that this may not be a good idea at all at such a great height. I tried to slow my ragged breaths, taking them up the stairs and down, and forced my legs to hang limp. I looked down to see what imprisoned me. Colossal claws, as long as my forearm, attached to scaled bronze toes. They circled me from my chest to the top of my legs. And these monstrous claws were all that stopped me from dropping to my death on the rocks below. I was prey in the clutches of a flying predator. A bird? A beast? I couldn't tell. I heard myself make a strangled sound, half sob, half feverish laugh. We were gaining height and through my streaming eyes, I saw we were heading out to sea. I kicked out again in terror. I couldn't help myself. My boot fell from my foot and spun through the air, hitting the rock below with a bounce. My skull would not bounce. Stay bricky. I gripped tight as jolts passed through the beast's claws in time with the flap of its wings, which sounded like the snap and creak of the ship's sails. 
We were now over the sea. If I was dropped, would I have some chance? Or would the height make the sea as hard as a rock? A yelp was snatched from my mouth as my captor dived like an arrow. So fast, all was a blur, and the wind screeched in my ears. Then the claws opened, and I was released. Empty air was all that held me. I tumbled head over foot, kicking and flailing at nothing, and hit the water so hard, I thought the beast had dropped me on the rock after all, like a bird drops a muscle to break the shell. I never thought I would be pleased to be back in the sea, but when it washed around me, I felt a gush of relief. I kicked with all I had and swam to the surface, where I took in a lungful of water as a wave slapped me. I thanked the Lord over and over for the miracle that I was not yet dead. Gosh, you must imagine the shock of that um, <laughs> taken by something that at the moment he doesn't even know what it is. One of the things that struck me is that about a third of this book takes place with Sim on his own on this island. There's no other character as such uh, for him to interact with. And I wondered if that presented any challenges and how you kind of dealt with it. That's a brilliant question because that was probably the main challenge of writing this book. But first of all, he meets Farthing, which is this um, never before seen. I don't want to give any spoilers. So I'll say a never before seen species of lizard with very, very high intelligence that actually is able to help him survive by showing him how to get water and showing him how to get food and even showing him how to tend to wounds that he gets later on, plus helping him escape from the beast in the sky. Um, So he has this interaction, but of course an interaction with a lizard that does not speak doesn't really help the writer. So one of the fantastic things about Sims Covington is he's listed on the Beagle um, crew listing as cabin boy to the poop deck and ship's fiddler. And so what we decided to do was wash Sims up with his fiddle, because when we have a survival tale, we always need um, our character to have some tools that he can use. So the fiddle becomes important to him later on for survival. But it also becomes a friend to him because the fiddle was gifted to him by his father, who taught him how to play the violin. And so he begins to speak to the fiddle and calls the fiddle scratch because Mr. Darwin doesn't like the sound of the fiddle. And he has this sort of semi-affectionate nickname for Sims's fiddle. So throughout the time that Sims is on the island, he does actually have his fiddle miraculously with him and is able to actually speak to the fiddle and imagine that fiddle speaking back to him, which gave us what we needed in terms of interaction for that character Mm. when he was alone. Yeah. Another thing that really struck me about the writing was the very similitude of the dragon that you've created. It really felt like this dragon could exist And I was fascinated by the kind of science, if you like, that you put into it, the workings of the dragon, 
How important was that to you that you you would feel that this could be a real thing, a real creature? When I create, decided I was going to write a dragon story and my publishers said, yes, Lindsay, let's see what you can do with real dragons. That was my first port of call. Before Darwin, before Sims, I had the dragon. So I designed the dragon using uh, research about pterosaurs from prehistoric times and dinosaurs and reptile, um, large reptile behavior. And then I created it kind of from their point of view that this is a dinosaur that has survived because of course they did think that dinosaurs were dragons when they first discovered dinosaurs and that's kind of the the basis of the whole concept of the dragon being real but I also wanted to call on some myth you know I wanted to have that gold element to it but I mean we see those beautiful colors in nature so really there isn't anything about the dragon that couldn't exist other than the physics of flying Mm -hmm. I've had to kind of you know hope that mother nature could have found a way to create bones light enough on such a huge beast to actually take to the sky but the fire I researched the bombardier beetles and all of those other animals that have amazing defense mechanisms in nature and fire, to me, didn't seem like that far a stretch, really. You can do anything in a story, Lindsay, can't you? You can, you can. <laughs> but you, I needed it to be believable. That was really, really important. Yeah. I'm really interested in how um, you've written the book. You chose a seven-part structure, and each part has a sort of epigram from Darwin's writings, The Descent of Man, I think maybe The Voyage of the Beagle. But anyway, there are little epigrams in there. How did you come about that decision to break it up in this way? The seven-part structure is really a three-part structure that I've subdivided. So I've gone for a, a quite more, much more typical sort of three-act structure where you have the introduction to the adventure. You have Sims originally, his goal is to protect his master and then it's to survive. But then throughout the entire kind of second act, Sims's goal becomes then to protect this friendship that he's made with this animal. And then the third act is really all about protecting the animals and feeling the responsibility that he has to these creatures that he's then brought back to London. And then that's where it really kicks in into the third act where he's then got to protect them and, and prevent them from dying. So I kind of subdivided the sections up in the middle because I wanted Charles Darwin's quotes as he went through his career to kind of bracket those sections. In that final act, Queen Victoria makes an appearance and uh, there's a sort of subtle commentary really on imperialism and the fact that whatever you find around the world belongs to you. Yes. And I really I was I'm I do find Queen Victoria fascinating. And again, she's another person we always see as this old grim woman dressed in black and very, very sort of stern. But actually, I've researched her youth very in a lot of detail. And she just yearned for love and fun and had this 
terrible childhood where she was locked away. So it really didn't seem like too much of a stretch to imagining her wanting to be involved with these creatures that were highly intelligent when Sims brings these lizards back. But then, of course, her upbringing, she basically believes that she has a right to the world. And so at first it seems like she could be a protector of these animals. But actually, as you say, it is a commentary on how we treat the animals. And of course, you have Mr. Darwin as well and the story of the orangutan in London Zoo, which I added on a very late draft because it's just this huge pathos Mm. of what actually happened to these animals that were studied. But I felt like I needed to tell a bit of truth about what happened to them. I mean, you don't touch on this in in your, your story, uh, but of course, it wasn't just animals, but people too. Didn't he take a native? Uh, an he did three of them. Brought them back to London to see if they yes. could be, in inverted commas, civilised. Yes. And then dropped them back in their own environments where they could no longer fit in. That story, I did a huge amount of research on as well. And we did vaguely consider that we might need, might include that, but we decided not to. We decided that's not my story to tell. No, it would have, um, it would have been overly complicated, I think. Oh, definitely, you keep, yeah. You had to keep focused on the central part yes. of your story. Um, I did feel as I was reading it that I, I was convinced that you had been to the Galapagos. How were you so convincing? You must have done quite a bit of research here. Yeah, I did a lot of research. I watched all of David Attenborough's um, Galapagos kind of on repeat. I have two a two screen setup uh, for my writing and I had one screen often just sort of playing it on mute in the background so that I could actually feel like I was there. Um, there's also Galapagos cams that I went on and I had books with beautiful photography of the Galapagos and I kind of lived and breathed it uh, throughout writing it. But I'm so glad that it comes across. A lot of that detail was added in the later drafts, everything that he could have come across. So we managed to, we introduced the flamingos in, we had um, the sea lions in, which are quite an important part of it. You've got the finches even make an appearance because they're such a um, iconic Darwin's finches. And actually, it's a true story that Darwin didn't even remember the differences between the finches until he got back to London. And then he actually asked Sims. And that's true. He did actually ask Sims because Sims took his own notes as well to tell him what the differences between the finches were that he later used as his evidence for his on on the origin of species ideas. Wow, what a fascinating story. And of course, you've got the giant tortoise and my favourite, the blue-footed booby, and their feet are amazing. You would not think you could get that colour blue on a bird, would you? On their feet. And I was so happy when it appeared in the cover. I think it's on the back flap. Yes. (laughs) The other thing at at this particular period in time uh, that comes through uh, very subtly is these big major institutions that really were established in the 19th century. Uh, there's the Natural History Museum, which of course wasn't called that then, but 
is basically what the Natural History Museum is today. Yes. Um, the Zoological Society of London. I mean, the 19th century was an amazing time, wasn't it, for all of these big scientific bodies? It was just all happening during that time that people were gathering together. It was a huge time for science. I've always been fascinated with that era because there's so much change going on so much inequality and so many actual institutions that are set up that really haven't changed that much even now and you know are only really realizing that they need to change and their ideas are quite antiquated but you know they were the start they were the start of an amazing sort of tradition of discovery before that time it was much more about religion and this was a time where it moved on from religion and became about looking at the world around us and thinking of the here and now rather than looking towards an afterlife. It really, really was a huge time of change. I wanted to ask you, Lindsay, you're a science teacher yeah. and a great storyteller. How well does science and story go together? Well, I originally wasn't a science teacher. I was actually trained as an English teacher. But um, I always liked teaching science the best. So I kind of specialised myself into that role. But science and story go hugely well in my point of view. And I always say to the young people that I teach that uh, science is creative. Science isn't just about facts. Science is also about the facts we haven't discovered yet. You know, it is actually the most creative thing there is because you have to think of an idea and use your imagination to get your hypothesis that you then test. You know, if you can't widen your mind to possibility and creativity, then none of these things would have been discovered. None of our amazing scientific discoveries would have happened without really creative people at the forefront of them. Mm. That comes across very much in your uh, depiction of Mr. Darwin you know, he's really asking, isn't he, himself that question all the time, what if, which yes. is a great storyteller's question as well. Yes. And also in the communication of science, uh, as well as the kind of discovery element, is story important in the communication of science too? Well, I think story is important in all communication. Actually, it's a subject that really fascinates me. And it's incredibly important when remembering facts and things that they are presented in a story because we're wired as humans scientifically to understand story that's how early humans communicated with each other and how we ended up getting where we are today is through communication and social behaviors which all goes back to story so I totally agree that science needs to be communicated through story and it's really interested in the news at the moment the way that the pandemic is communicated to people, it's all about the stories that are being told. And when you see these stats and graphs, it's very confusing for people because we don't learn that way. We learn by people interpreting ideas and telling them to us with a sense of story, with sense of visual, something we can hang it on, comparison. And so you only really get that from journalism. So I'm totally fascinated with how things are communicated. And I'm glad that comes through the book. I bet you can't wait to get into schools to be communicating this story to young people. 
I absolutely love being with young people. And I mean, it is sad that I won't be able to be in person. But in a way, being on Zoom and in Microsoft Teams and other ways, you can actually reach a wider audience because I physically, I've got kids of my own. I can't be traveling all around the country all the time, but I can be on the screen. Brilliant. So, yeah, I can't wait. I've got my banner and I've even got my Victorian blouse, which I shall be wearing. (laughs) when I do my Zoom visits. And you'll be talking to them about the book. Is there anything else that you'll be uh, communicating on those visits? I will be talking about a variety of different things. We'll definitely be talking about creative writing and giving some story prompts and talking about how I came up with the idea for a story and how that could help them. But also I'll be showing them some of the things that um, artifacts from the Beagle Um, little bits and pieces I've gathered. And I've also even got a uh, full-size puppet of Farthing as she was when um, Sims met her on the island. It's going to be a lot of fun and interactive and I just can't wait to get started on them, really. Brilliant. Lindsay, thank you so much for talking to me in the Reading Corner today um, and giving me much pleasure in advance of my visit to the Galapagos, which I will just say at the end of this recording here, I read something published by the Zoological Society recently, and they said it's important that people, if they visit the Galapagos, only visit once in a lifetime because it's a highly protected area. And so if we do, if we are lucky enough to get that opportunity, we have to use that time well and record lots of memories in our minds rather than thinking we're going to go back. And of course, that's where the dragons end up in the Galapagos. So I really hope when you visit, you will take a fireproof suit and some extra provisions and take very good care. Thank you so much for joining (laughs) me today. Thank you for having me. I've really, really loved talking about it.